Today marks the uh, end of a week-long celebration for Christians all around the world called Passion Week. On Palm Sunday, last Sunday, we focused on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and on, as an added bonus and benefit, the return of Jesus. Thought we would add that into it, so that was kind of cool. It, It was awesome. And then on Friday, we focused on the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We had a a lovely service here at RHC. Um, We read scripture and sang hymns together. It was just great. Uh, And we had quite a few people. I just really enjoyed myself. I was blessed. That's all I could put on my Facebook deal was just blessed. That's all I could put. Blessed, period. Because that was just a fantastic time with you guys and with Jesus And now we've come to the end of the celebration, the end of Passion Week, Easter Sunday, or the more technical term, Resurrection Sunday. That is today. Are you excited about that? Okay, 20%. Now, with that being said, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn right over to Acts chapter 25. We're going to begin there. And keep moving. In fact, I'm going to attempt to do something that I've never done before. Uh, I think it was Evil Knievel that attempted to jump Caesar's palace and he crashed. The fountain, right? Well, I'm probably going to crash and burn today as I try to preach through an entire chapter of scripture. Yeah. Yeah, see? Some people know what that means. They know the implications, right? Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 25, and I had in your bulletin 23, but we really focused on that last week, so I'm going to pick it up at 24, so forget about that little thing there. We're going to go from 25, 24, all the way through chapter 26, and end at verse 32. And I know some of you were thinking it's going to be a long morning. Uh, He's long-winded as it is, Uh, but uh, I'm going to give it my best shot. What I'm going to do with this massive section is pull 12 things from the text, present those to you, describe them, define them a bit, and uh, so be ready to write those things down. I think it'd be really a a good idea for you to write them down. This would be a good way to break down this long section. There are many things taking place in it, but I've identified 12 key things that we're going to be looking at. I'd like to give you just a little context before we pray and begin because, you know, we're jumping right into a narrative, and uh, it makes almost no sense to start a movie halfway through, right? I mean, it'd be really tough to figure out the plot line in those things, and it's the same thing when you read a book or when you read the Bible. You need to know the context. You need to know what's playing out in the text beforehand, and so I'm going to give you just a little bit of context, and that'll help to frame where we're going, and uh, the thing that I think I'm most excited about, and it's been really challenging, is that normally... During Passion Week, every year we break away from our normal teaching series and, you know, we we go to passages that have to do with the events that took place during Passion Week. And, And this year, the Lord has deliberately kept us in Acts because it points to those events. And so we've been able to stay in the book of Acts, but it's been very challenging too because... Uh, those things might be mentioned here or alluded to or pointed to, but it is an ongoing narrative, and there's a lot of things happening there, and so we have to focus on a lot. So it's been an interesting thing. It's, it was a struggle uh, to get this thing together for this week. I don't know why. I had a real hard time, and maybe it just has to do with the devil because he hates Jesus. He hates the resurrection. He hates us. 
And, you know, ultimately, through the life of Jesus and through the death of Jesus on the cross and the burial of Jesus in the tomb and then the raising of Jesus, the devil has been completely defeated. Death has been overcome. And so he hates Easter. He hates it when we talk about the gospel. He just hates all of that. And one thing he wants to do is frustrate us and confuse us and lead us astray and to cause us to focus on lesser things. And so it's been tough. But anyways, here's your context. The Apostle Paul was being held at Caesarea pretty much at the request of the Jews. They made up lies about him and filed false charges against him. You just have to know that they hated Paul. Paul proclaimed Jesus as Israel's come Messiah and risen Messiah and, and they did not you know, receive Jesus as the Messiah and they hated Jesus as the alleged Messiah in their minds. They hated those who proclaimed the gospel. They hated the resurrection, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. They hated all of that and they hated Paul. They couldn't stand Paul. They, they wanted to kill him. And basically, he was being held at Caesarea. And during, there was a trial that took place, a couple of them actually, but during the trial, the Jews presented their case against Paul, and Paul presented his defense. He, he was able to defend himself, and he did a really good job of it. He hadn't done any of the things that the Jews said he had done. He was, you know, in their minds, or in, in their offense, uh, so to speak, that they had said that he'd done just about everything. He'd broken every law under the sun, and so he defended himself. Festus, the governor at that time, he was a new governor. He had been just recently appointed by Emperor Nero. He listened to the case, and he became convinced that Paul was innocent. But, but, he feared that if he turned Paul loose, the Jews would create trouble for him, and they no doubt would. Paul, therefore, requested to be transferred to Rome so that he could stand before Emperor Nero, who was the highest judge in the Roman Empire. He, he couldn't uh, really get the kind of trial he needed down at the lower levels. And so he said, well, we're not going to accomplish anything here in this smaller court. I'd like to appeal to Caesar. And, and this was really a blessing from Paul to Governor Festus because he was at an impasse. He didn't want to keep Paul in jail because Paul was innocent and Paul was a Roman citizen, so it was unlawful for him to keep him in jail, but he knew if he turned him loose, he'd be in a lot of trouble with the Jews. And so he was, he was in a bit of a kibosh, if you will. And so Paul said, hey, just send me to Caesar. And he said, you got it, brother. So he's going to send him and the case is going to move from his district in hands and he's going to be freed from this burden and the threat of the Jews. Now, while Paul was waiting to be transferred... King Agrippa came to Caesarea to visit Festus. It may have been customary for a local king to go into a particular city or province to visit and welcome and congratulate a new governor. And I believe that's what Agrippa was doing. King Agrippa was king over the northern part of Palestine, we would call it today, Israel, if you will. And he was an expert in Jewish religion, Jewish life, Jewish tradition. He was an expert in these things. He had grown up and been educated in Rome, but he was Jewish and he knew everything there was to know about Judaism and these sorts of things. He was, by definition, an expert in Jewish affairs. Now, Governor Festus thought that Agrippa could help him with Paul's case. 
and asked if he'd be willing to do so. Here's this expert in Jewish law and these things, and he comes to your city to congratulate you and to say hi. Meanwhile, you've got this pending case and this pending transfer, and he figures, maybe this guy can help me figure out what's going on here with this dude. And Festus, or Agrippa said, yes, no problem, I'll do it. He really wanted to hear Paul speak himself because, Festus, uh, because Agrippa was an expert in Jewish affairs and Paul was talking about things that pertain to, in their minds, Judaism. And so he wanted to listen. On the next day, on the way to the audience hall, Festus gave Agrippa a grand entrance with great pomp. All the pomp and circumstance of the royal families of England and beyond, probably, I would think. This entrance was incredible. It was spectacular. It was a spectacle. All the jewelry and the royal robe and the crown and the Mr. T. Bling. This king was decked out. The woman with him, Bernice, was decked out. You know, he had all of these dignitaries with him who were wearing their finest garb. He had the five Roman tribunes who were... uh, deployed at Caesarea, and they were in full military dress. They came in behind him. This was a procession. And, and, and everyone at this point in the narrative has entered the building, and the hearing is about to begin. They're going to listen to Paul defend himself again. Agrippa wants to hear it. Maybe he can give an insight or two to Governor Festus. That's where we're at in the narrative. You got it? That's what's playing out in this section of Acts. Father God, We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth. Speak the truth to our hearts, Lord. Send the Holy Spirit in power. Without his aid, without his work, without his illuminating presence and power, we will not understand, comprehend, be able to apply, be able to live out the truth. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to be manifested here in a powerful way in our hearts. Remove our sin and transgressions and distractions, the cares of this world, May we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, focus on the very word of God. You desire to speak to us today. Do so. Make us more like Christ. Save those. Show mercy to those who have yet to become saved. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Number one. Remember, I'm going to give you 12 things, right? Number one. First thing we see is Festus' opening comments. That's how this part of the narrative begins. We see that in chapter 25, verses 24 to 27, right? I'll read it, give a little explanation. Some of this stuff a little further into the narrative, I'm going to summarize because it's repetitive. We've seen it in other chapters. You've probably read about it in your own time. So I don't want to exposit every line. We would be here for hours and hours and hours, and you would begin to yell, crucify him. So we don't want to do that. I don't feel like dying today. Plus, that cross is a little small for my frame. All right, number one, right? Festus' opening comments. Let's look at 25, 24 through 27. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. First thing we see here, Paul has been brought in, he's put center stage, and the governor points to him and tells everyone, this is the guy that the whole world basically has a problem with. That guy right there, that's the man that all these Jews in my district and beyond are ticked off, they they say that he ought not to live anymore, that's the guy. And I was reading a commentary and it, it, it was... I I don't know how accurate it was. Apparently, this person was able to describe what Paul looked like. Apparently, he looked like George Costanza on Seinfeld. 
Yeah, you've seen Seinfeld? Short, a little, you know, girthy, bald, an architect? No, he wasn't, right? You've seen the show? But apparently that's what he looked like. He was short, he was unappealing, he was bald. And so in this room, you have the greatest celebrities and people in this community, the king of a region, you have the governor, you have, it's just an amazing sight, and then in the middle of it, you have Danny DeVito. And just Paul's just like, and, and, and here's this governor, that's the guy. You see that guy right there, that little nothing? That's him. So this is how this thing begins. I don't know about you, but if I was in Paul's shoes, my shoes would have been there and I would have been gone. I would have been embarrassed. I would have been afraid. I would have been scared. And he points to this, you know, unappealing, unattractive, unimpressive guy. And God chooses. God has chosen the weak in the world to shame the strong, has he not? And Paul is that. And then he says, but I found, 25, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. What's he saying here? He's saying, you know what? We had a trial. The Jews presented their offense. Paul presented his defense. I couldn't find anything wrong with the guy. He didn't break any Roman laws. He's not in any trouble in my book. He points him out and says, hey, I don't, I don't find anything wrong with the guy. These are the first things that he says in his opening comments. And then at 26, but I have, he says, but I have nothing definite. Now, this is the reason why the hearing's taking place. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa. Remember, he's the expert. So that after we have examined him, I might have something to write. Here's the situation that Festus was in. Paul had broken no laws. He was not a criminal. He was being held unlawfully. Festus had nothing to write about him pertaining to some sort of breach of the law. And he's about to send this innocent man to the emperor for a trial. Does this make any sense? Festus is in a situation here. He's like, I got to come up with some kind of paperwork. I've got to fill out a 10W6 on this guy. And I've got to send him with the appropriate charges and stuff to the emperor. Or the emperor is going to think I'm a flaming moron. You can't send a guy who's being held as a criminal to a higher court without charges. Can you imagine if that took place today? You've got a guy who was found innocent, but we're keeping him in jail for some reason, probably because of public opinion or political correctness, and then we send him to the Supreme Court and we send him with no charges. The Supreme Court would go, who's the moron that did this paperwork? Who is the idiot that sent this guy to me? And we're talking about the emperor. You think he has time for this? Now, Festus had just been appointed by Nero. It certainly wouldn't be good for his newly appointed career to make a fumble like this and to send a guy up there without any charges or rationale. And so he's afraid here. I I think it would actually be unlawful for him to send Paul at this point. He's got to come up with something to write. And look what he says in 27. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. (laughs) Light bulb. I got to come up with something. I can't just send this guy the way he is. Give me something. His hope, his motive here in this hearing is that someone will listen to Paul, 
and, and say, there it is. That's what you write down. That's why we're holding him. Put that down on your report and send him. That's what he's hoping for. He's got Agrippa there who's the expert. He's really hoping that Agrippa will come up with something. Second thing we see, Paul's compilation, 26, 1 through 7. A compilation is... Uh, a, a fancy way to say opening comments. I wanted to have for most of these 12 things all C's. So you're going to hear a lot of C's. I don't know why preachers do this. They just feel like they've got to come up with all these acrostics and these C's. Everything has to have the letter C. I'm guilty. I did that. And so I was, you know, and, and let me tell you just right now. I am a synonym master. I use that stuff online, trying to find words that have the right beginning and the right, you know, and it just, it's just, it's really stupid. So anyways, Paul's compilation, 26, 1 through 7, these are his opening comments. These are his opening statements. And it begins with Agrippa addressing Paul. You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Again, this is a common way for orators, for attorneys, for philosophers to address a congregation, group, or whoever. They stretch out their hand trying to draw the attention to themselves. And he does that. He stretches out his hand and he begins to make his defense. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am, I am, it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Now, this looks like a little bit of pandering, a little bit of smoochy-poo, right? You know, like, hey, king, I'm glad it's you, <clears throat> right? That's not at all what he's doing. He's actually literally thrilled that Agrippa is going to hear his case because he knows Agrippa is an expert in these things. He knows that Agrippa will be able to relate to what he's saying. He knows that Agrippa will be familiar with the scriptures that he's going to quote. And so he really is thrilled here that it is Agrippa. And look what he says in three. He says that exact thing. Number three, or verse three, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Customs meaning Judaism, their laws, their ordinances, their religion. Controversies meaning the church and Jesus Christ and, and the gospel and Christianity. Those were considered Jewish controversies. In, in, uh, in Roman thought, Christianity was a schism it was something that emerged out of Judaism, and it was a parallel false religion to it. And so this is a controversy here. This guy was familiar with the Jewish stuff and with the church and the gospel in a sense. The controversies of the Jews. And he says, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. What a friendly gesture. Please listen to me. And then he says, verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews... They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. What Paul's saying here is that I'm known by people in this audience. They act like they don't know me. I know I went down a different path. You know, Christ came to me. I went to Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. I left their belief system in a sense. And now all of a sudden they act like they don't know me. But Paul says... Everyone, most people at least, and people in this room know about my upbringing, how I was raised, how I was trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. I'm a known guy. He's not boasting here. He's just trying to, to help the king understand that he's not really far off from where they're at. I came from them. They know me. And I love how he says, if they'd be willing to testify. Isn't it amazing how when you cross somebody 
in a negative way, all of a sudden they act like they don't know you, right? Wives do this to their husbands, you know? You didn't take out the trash, right? I don't know you, you know? That doesn't really happen. We have our kids take out the trash. We have slaves at our house. It's wonderful. (laughs) Whip them, you know? But it's amazing how this happens, and that's what Paul was experiencing. He's telling them, hey, I know people in here. They've known me since my youth. They know what I've studied. They know that I'm an expert in the law as well. They know that I'm familiar with prophecy and scripture. That's what he's saying. And then he says in 6 and 7, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night or night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king, exclamation point. The hope Paul pointed to here was the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom, especially the resurrection connected with his coming. It was that promise that was made by God throughout the Old Testament. Messiah would come to take away sin and establish his kingdom of righteousness. And it was that very promise to which the 12 tribes of Israel hoped to obtain as they earnestly worshipped night and day. Yet incredibly, it was for proclaiming that very hope fulfilled in Jesus Christ that Paul was being accused by the apostate Jews. Paul was in a way on trial for believing the same thing that they believed in. The difference was he believed it had happened and they were still waiting for it to happen. But he's on trial for for saying it's happened. He's appealing here. Now, number three, appealing to Agrippa, saying, hey, I believe what they believe in a sense, these things. Number three, Paul's confusion. This is interesting. 26.8. Paul's confusion. Why is it thought, listen to this question, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? What a statement. What a question. Incredible is apistos in Greek, which means unbelievable or inconceivable. Notice how I put the little slur in there because I love that movie. Is that Princess Bride? inconceivable that's what incredible in this text means it means inconceivable Paul basically said why is it inconceivable to you that God raises the dead what a great question he asks and it was actually more of a rebuke it was targeted to the Jews that are in the room They believed in resurrection or in a type of resurrection the universal resurrection of all people at the end of time Paul was absolutely astonished at how they affirmed that form of resurrection but rejected others, namely that of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, which is also foretold in the Old Testament scripture. But interestingly, it wasn't that long ago when Paul himself believed as they believed. It wasn't that long ago when Paul was right there in their shoes. So he's rebuking them, but he's doing it in a sensitive way with a knowledge of his own mistakes and past beliefs and that leads us right to number four Paul's confession Paul's confession 26 9 through 12 I myself look what he says about himself here I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth what Paul was saying is at one time in my life I did what you're doing now 
At one time in my life, I was in your shoes. I did what you're doing. You're opposing Jesus of Nazareth through opposing me. And at one time, I opposed him as well. And he says, and, and look, look what he does. He gives some examples of how he opposed the name of Jesus. He says in 10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Cast my vote is a reference to the ancient custom of recording votes. Uh, a juror would toss a black pebble, a little pebble, they'd hold these pebbles, they'd toss a little black pebble for conviction, or they'd toss a little white pebble for acquittal. And that is what Paul did. And the reference here has to do with Stephen the martyr. He cast his vote against him. It was a black pebble. Hey, I, I did what you guys did, maybe even worse, and then he says in 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, not in two synagogues, not in three, not in six, not in nine, every one he ever went to. All the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. What does he mean here? He tried to get them to denounce, to denounce Christ. That's what he wanted them to do. At the threat of death, at the threat of persecution, at the threat of pain and violence, he wanted them to renounce Christ. He did. Kind of reminds me of those men who were just beheaded by ISIS in northern Africa. Where was it at? What country? Libya. On that beach. None of them renounced Christ. They all had an opportunity to do it, and all of them lost their heads. This is what Paul was trying to force upon Christians at this time. He wanted them to blaspheme. And enraging, listen to this, look how he describes his, his attitude towards the church in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What does that tell us? It means that Damascus wasn't the only place that he attempted to go to to do this. He actually went to other cities beyond Jerusalem to do this. In raging fury. And then he says in verse 12, in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. This is where it gets amazing. Number five, Paul's conversion. Another C. Paul's conversion, 26, 13 to 15. He says, 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. What's he doing here? Hey, he was on, on his way to Damascus with a direct order from the Sanhedrin to arrest and incarcerate Christians. And while he was on his way on the Damascus road, he saw a light from heaven. This is where Jesus interrupted his life. This is where Jesus came to him on the Damascus road and regenerated him, illuminated him, saved him. It's amazing what he's talking about. That's what he's pointing to here. We've heard about this a few times in Acts. It says in 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, even those with him fell to the ground. The light just rocked them. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this is Jesus speaking to him. And he says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? That was his former name. He was the artist formerly known as Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And what Jesus meant was, you're persecuting the church, which means you're persecuting me. When a Christian is persecuted, Jesus is directly persecuted. Any harm done to a Christian is harm done to the Lord Jesus. And he says to Paul, you've been doing that to me. You have been persecuting me by persecuting the church why are you kicking against the goads a goad was a sharp instrument that was used to prod an animal 
to get it to do what you want it to do, to get it to obey. If you wanted a sheep to go in a direction, you just poked it in the rear with that. If you wanted an oxen to do something, you poked it in the rear. And what Jesus says is you've been kicking against the goads. And my goat is just too big and powerful for you. You can't do nothing. And then in 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is that saving moment, the name of Jesus. Jesus preaches or speaks life, new life into Paul. He becomes a new creation right at this moment of this life-speaking address, changed forever. Hey, I was on my way to do what you guys are doing now, but look what happened to me. Jesus came to me, and he saved me. Number six, Paul's commission. Paul's commission. These seas are working, aren't they? Not really. 26, 16 through 20. 26, 16 through 20. After blinding, after flooring, and after rebuking and saving, Jesus commanded, verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. This was that commissioning of Paul. Jesus commissioned Paul to be his servant, to be his witness. And I love how he says, the Lord said to him, this is why I came to you. And we tend to think that the reason why Jesus comes to save people is because he just loves us so much and, and, he, and he just wants to lavish people with his grace and all. That's all true, fine and dandy, but he comes and he saves with a purpose. That your life would be on mission. That's part of repentance, is that you would be missional for Christ, that you would proclaim Christ to the nations, that you would live for him, that you would serve him that you would respond to the Great Commission with all joy and obedience and live out the faith. You see, Christ came to Paul with a purpose, not just to love and to save, but to commission. That's a huge problem in the American church. We want the love, we want the grace, we want the mercy, but we don't want to do the work. And there is a purpose behind our salvation. And Paul's was to do all that we've seen in the book of Acts and in the epistles to serve and to be a witness. Amazing. Jesus said, I want you to be a witness to what you've seen here on the Damascus Road and I want you to be a witness to what you will see and hear in the future during your ministry as I, Jesus, continue to appear to you and speak to you. You see, that's another thing about true salvation. You'll have an ongoing connection and relationship with Jesus Christ. I saved you for a purpose, and we're going to keep interacting. You're not going to get saved and come to church twice a year. It's going to be an ongoing thing. We're going to commune together. That's also true repentance. It's ongoing. And how many people do you know who prayed a little prayer, and that's it? Gone. Oh, we see in the text here, it's an ongoing thing. And I love the mercy of the Lord here to Paul. He says, basically, knowing that Paul would make many enemies, right, because people hate the gospel, they hate Jesus, Jesus also promised deliverance. He says in 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. 
Okay, if you just study the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, you'll, you'll find that there is no other person in the New Testament or in the book of Acts who was divinely delivered more than the Apostle Paul. Man, I mean, it's just unbelievable. God continually and perpetually delivered him from his enemies, from city to city, from province to province. God delivered Paul in Damascus. God delivered Paul in Jerusalem. God delivered Paul in Iconium. God delivered Paul in Lystra. God delivered Paul in Philippi. God delivered Paul in Thessalonica. God delivered Paul in Berea. God delivered Paul in Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem again, and Caesarea from Governor Felix and the Jews, didn't he? God is a deliverer. That's what we talk about on Resurrection Sunday. Now, why did God deliver Paul in each of these towns or cities? So that he could continue to go to whom he had been sent. For what purpose? Verse 18, to open their eyes, preaching the gospel, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why did God continually deliver him from his enemies, from the enemies of Christ and all of those places so he could continue in ministry and continue to preach the gospel? Because it is the gospel that opens eyes. It is the gospel that turns people from darkness to light. It is the gospel that turns people from the power of Satan to God. It is the gospel where we receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. I deliver you so you can stay on mission. I deliver you so you can stay on mission. Paul then tried to reason with King Agrippa. He told him that he was simply obeying God. You know, I I, I was like you guys, and then I had this vision, and I got saved, and everything changed. I was commissioned. And because of what Christ did for me and did in me, I had to obey him. He tries to reason with him here. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn from their sin, turn from their idols, turn from false religion, and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. He basically tries to reason with him, says, King, I was just obeying God. That's all I was trying to do. And I began to obey him in Damascus and Jerusalem and here and here and here and here. That's his mission and that's what he was doing. And then we get to number seven, Paul's constrainment. 26.21, Paul's constrainment. Verse 21, he says, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He's now pointing to what we read and studied just a chapter or two back when he went to Jerusalem, he went into the temple to worship, and the Jews seized him and tried to kill him right on the spot. He got rescued from the tribune, Claudius Lysias there. He's saying, man, I, I, had, you know, I was like you at one time, and then I got saved, and I went on mission, and, and I was just being obedient, doing what I was supposed to do, and then they came and stopped everything and arrested me. Then they came and, 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 and prohibited me from continuing in my commission from fulfilling God's will for my life. That's what he says here. I got seized in the temple. 
It was kind of like, and Paul definitely remained on mission while he was in jail and these places. So it wasn't like they stopped him from doing what he was supposed to do. That was all part of God's larger plan. But he's saying that I was doing what I was supposed to do and then they constrained me. Number eight, Paul's cornerstone. Oh man, this one just gets me going. Mm. Paul's cornerstone, 2622A. It's like he says, in spite of all that's happened, I've been jailed for living out my commission, for being a minister of the gospel. And he says in 22A, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Oh, this is an amazing statement. Paul recognized and knew that his help came from God, that God was his cornerstone, that God was his refuge, that God was his deliverer, that God was his savior, that God was his strong tower. They did this to me at the temple, but to this day I've had the help of God. They did this, but God is greater He's my cornerstone. He's my help. He he continues to sustain me. These are all the implications of this little verse. Friend, is God your cornerstone? Is he your deliverer? Is he your help? Is he your strong tower? Is he your foundation for life? Is he the rock by which you stand in this tumultuous, dangerous, tempting, fallen world? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is. Paul testifies right here. And they know he's all about Jesus, so they know what parallel he's making. It's equivalent to saying, to this day I have the help that comes from the Lord Jesus, who is God. What a testimony here. Number nine, Paul's confirmation. 26, 22b through 23. Paul put himself here, this is amazing, in the order of the prophets and Moses. The prophets and Moses pointed to the Messiah to come. Paul, as a prophet like them, pointed to the Messiah who came. This is what he says here, 22b. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great because that room was filled with all sorts of people saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm just preaching that it came to pass, brothers. That's what he says. I'm just telling you the good news that what they preached was coming. I'm here to tell you, like they told you he was coming, I'm here to tell you in the order of the prophets of Moses, he came. Look what he says. 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul had several prophetic scriptures in mind here. Undoubtedly, he was thinking of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which speak of Messiah's future suffering. This prophecy was fulfilled at Calvary, wasn't it? And a little bit before that, because he was beaten up real bad right before he went to the cross. So bad to the point that he couldn't even carry a 40-pound cross member of the cross, cross member bar of that cross. He also had in mind 1 Corinthians 15, 20, which speaks of the Messiah as the first person to be resurrected, right? He's the first fruit of many brothers. This prophecy was fulfilled on Easter Sunday, wasn't it? That's what we celebrate today. 
He also had in mind Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6, 6, which speak of the resurrected Messiah's message of light to Gentiles and Jews. Scripture frequently uses light as a metaphor for salvation. That is the idea here. Light means salvation. Jesus referred to himself as what? The light or the salvation of the world. He's the only savior in this world. After his resurrection and ascension, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus began to proclaim the light to Jews and Gentiles vicariously through the apostles, thus fulfilling the prophecies in Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6. The prophets and Moses pointed to Messiah's future suffering, resurrection, and preaching ministry. Paul confirmed that those prophecies had been actualized. And he pointed to his own life and ministry to prove it. I'm here as they, as they came then. I'm here now doing what they did. Paul was a living example of fulfilled prophecy. Every true believer who still has breath in his or her lungs is a living example of fulfilled prophecy. If you are in Christ, you are a living testimony to the prophetic truth of Scripture. Your conversion testifies to prophetic truth. Your faith testifies to prophetic truth. Your life testifies to prophetic truth. That's why it's so important for us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our high calling. Your ministry testifies to prophetic truth, that, to the truth of Scripture, that things have come to pass. Things were projected and things have come. There was a layaway plan. It's been purchased in full. Your marriage testifies to prophetic truth. Lord, I hope it does, and I hope mine does. I'm working on it. Paul confirmed the prophetic reality of the risen Christ through his life and ministry. And we confirm the prophetic reality of the risen Christ through our life and ministry. As it was with Paul, it is with us and every other true believer. There are also prophetic truths that pertain to unbelievers. Prophecies about judgment, prophecies about punishment, prophecies about all, all sorts of other things. Unbelievers, therefore, testify to prophetic truth as well. And we'll see an example of this in the next point. Number 10, Festus's conniption. I, I typed in there in the little, in the little cinnamon thing, cinnamon in, the cinnamon thing, and, and then I went to the sugar one, uh, cinnamon thing, Cinnamon, I can't say it. Say it for me, please, help me. Thank you. It's like that word, that perspicuity word that I do so well and you can't do. Perspiration, I don't know, whatever. I'll stop, I'll stop, I'll stop. Get back on track. I typed into the synonym thing, fit. <laughs> right, like somebody throws a fit, like, you know, tantrum, and conniption was the C. I was like, yes, Jesus, you got me. 26, 24 to 25. And as he was saying these things in his defense, this is Paul speaking now. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus thought Paul was crazy. Thought he was Looney Tune. Cuckoo. A crazy, out of his mind fool. And he interrupted Paul and threw a conniption, outburst. At this moment, Festus, an unbeliever, 
became a living testimony to prophetic truth, didn't he? 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. They're stupid. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And here's the truth. If you preach the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the lordship of Jesus Christ, people are going to think you're a crazy fool. They're going to think you're loony. They're going to think you're nuts. And when they ridicule us, and they do, and when they scoff at the truth that we proclaim, there's no reason for us to get defensive. Paul didn't do that here in this text, as we'll see. We need to remember that the reason why they react the way they do is because they have not the Holy Spirit. Paul then, when this outburst, this conniption took place, he then turned from Festus to Agrippa and said in 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. (laughs) Isn't that great? I don't know about you, but he called me crazy, man. Get him. This guy's just like, I'm speaking intelligible, clean, straight, rational words. I love that. Something else to consider here, it would be foolish for us to think that Paul's primary goal in turning to Agrippa or addressing this court, that his primary goal was to defend his sanity maybe or his innocence and thus be freed. He had something else in mind during this whole thing, friends. Number 11, Paul's conspiracy. You see, there was something hidden. It it isn't hidden to those who have discerning eyes and ears and hearts and minds. But it was probably hidden to most people in that room that don't have those things. 11, Paul's conspiracy, 26, 26 through 29. I'm telling you right now, this little nugget, this little section, this little paragraph, this little beauty right here, this little gem of holy writ, of holy scripture, it shows us that Paul was up to something. It shows that his defense was actually an offense. That he was actually trying to win his listeners to Christ, namely King Agrippa. How bold. Fighting for his life. Forget about my life. That guy needs life. That's his attitude here. Amazing. Amazing. He began to appeal to the king because of the king's background, right? For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Agrippa, again, was an expert in Jewish law, religion, culture, and affairs. He would not have thought that Paul was crazy because of his understanding of Old Testament prophecy. He wouldn't have thought, the first thought in his mind was that, you know, it wouldn't have been Paul's a nut job. It was in Festus because he was Roman and had no concept of these things. Most Jews believed in resurrection with the exception of the Sadducees. They believed in resurrection. And most of them did. And most of them, if not all, believed in Messiah who was coming, including Agrippa. Paul also asserted that Agrippa knew about what happened with Jesus. That's what he means when he talks about some of these things that did not escape his notice that were done, you know, not done in a corner or hidden. That's what he's referencing here. The things that took place with Jesus. 
Most people in this region were familiar with Jesus. They had heard and knew something about him. When Jesus arose from the grave, the religious leaders concocted a story that was still in circulation at this point. This is about 20 years later or so. That the disciples, here's the, here's the, here's the, uh, the, the, the little story, make-believe, the fictitious story they made up. That the disciples had stolen Jesus' body from the tomb to make it look like he had risen. We see that in Matthew 28, 13. This story was perpetuated over and over and over. In fact, it was to the point that it had become ingrained in the minds of Jews and Gentiles in that region. The Jews, after the resurrection of Jesus, immediately began to teach their children the whole Jesus thing really wasn't real. The disciples stole his body. Amazingly, they're still teaching their children that today as they catechize them. They tell them Jesus was not our Messiah. They stole his tomb. This is an ongoing lie today. It's literally been passed from generation to generation. Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, once quipped, if you tell a lie big enough and keep, it re- and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. They will. If you just tell a lie that's big enough and keep repeating it, all of a sudden people are like, that's what happened. That's what happened, man. Uh, they'll, they'll deny that it was a lie, that it was fictitious, that it was made up. This was the strategy the religious leaders employed back in, around the time that Jesus was resurrected, and it worked. And it is likely that Agrippa and others in the room believed that lie, that that was their default understanding. And as I said, Jews use it today. Because of his education and background, Paul asserted that Agrippa knew about the Old Testament prophecies, and because of his position as king, he asserted that Agrippa knew about Jesus. This double assertion is the basis for Paul's evangelistic method. He was trying to win King Agrippa to Christ by tying together the two things Agrippa knew, that Agrippa knew about, Old Testament prophecy and Jesus. That is his message in this text. Paul also pointed to his own conversion and ministry to support his message, to support his claims. I am the fruit of these truths. I am the reality of it. I am a living testimony to it. His testimony he used here as well. He literally pointed to his own conversion and ministry to support his message. He was, in a sense, living proof to the risen Lord Jesus and fulfilled prophecy. And as I said before, every true Christian is. It's not that you just pick up a Bible and read these things to people and tell them about it. You yourself are a testimony to these things. You are a testimony to the truth that's in that book. Paul then asked Agrippa a question, 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. (laughs) Paul cornered the king here, man. Talk about bold. If King Agrippa said no, he would lose the support of the religious leaders, right? They would be outraged. A Jewish king who doesn't believe in the prophets? Unthinkable, preposterous, crazy. But if he said yes, he would be affirming that Jesus, he would be affirming Jesus as Israel's risen Messiah, which would also put him in the hot water with the religious leaders, wouldn't it? Boy, he was in a situation here. Oh, How did he respond to Paul's tricky question? How did he answer? He didn't give an answer, right? You've seen this in the political realm, right? You know know a politician did something stupid and they stand up there and they don't answer the question. They 
divert and talk about other things and they ask questions. What about you, reporter? That's what he did here. He was a politician all the way through. He responded with a question of his own, didn't he? Look at 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This was his way of saying, what are you trying to do, Paul? Convert me to Christ here and now? Is that what you're up to? And he said this in a mocking tone. And I have no doubt that the room erupted in laughter and scoffing. It had to have. But I'll tell you this. Paul was not laughing. George Costanza, man, he had the eye of the tiger. And I know that's just a weird parallel. You got a little survivor music with George Costanza and the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure he would appreciate that. Maybe the eye of the tiger. But I'll tell you what. <laughs> He's trying to convert him to this Nazarene. <laughs> what a moron. What an imbecile. Look at him. He doesn't even have hair. He needs to go to hair club. They were hammering him in there. And he was straight-faced, laser focus. And he replied to the scoffing, to the joke, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, with the exception of these chains. Paul says, Agrippa says, are you trying to convert me? Here's our modern day translation. You're darn tootin'. And everyone in this room, I pray and hope and wish that all of you would become like me with the exception of these bonds. That should be the heart cry of every true believer that those around us would become as we are. Believers, saved, sanctified, becoming like Christ. Have the abundant joy that only Christ can give. Have the purpose and sense of security and an identity that only Christ can give. The hope that only Christ can give. Paul says, you're darn right I am. Everyone, I want everyone in this room to get saved. Twelve. Twelve. The court's consensus. Twenty-six. 30 through 32. After Paul said, you're darn tootin'. Verse 30, the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. Okay. These are the highest officials in there. They're the ones that are judging this case. They're the ones that are analyzing what's been said and all that. And when they stand up, that means court is adjourned. It's over. It has ended. When they get up, and turn to each other and start to walk away, which is what they're doing, it's done, it's over. 31, and when they had withdrawn, I just want you to stop there. When they had withdrawn, that means when they had left the building, which means they didn't give a verdict in that public setting and they didn't say anything further about Paul. When Paul said, I want everyone in this room to get saved, that's when people left. That was the last thing said in there. And it just goes to show how the natural man does not want to hear that. He ain't got time for that. 
You want us to believe in this Jesus and repent of our sin and trust in him? I'm out of here. Right? I, I did that for 31 years. Hey, get, out, get out of here with that crap. <laughs> I need to be saved. You had me at, you know, at, at some of the, when you were flattering me, I liked you. But, you know, when you started talking about Jesus, I'll listen to that. He was cool. He was a good guy. You're talking about how I need to repent of my sin, that you want me to be saved. What would I need to be saved from? Don't you know me? I'm a good person. I do good things. I haven't divorced my wife like my daddy left my mommy. I do good things. Get out of here with that junk. The last thing Paul says is, I want everyone to get saved. And at that point, they just, I think they couldn't tolerate it anymore. Because unregenerate sinners cannot tolerate the truth of God. They despise it. They hate it. Last thing said, I want everyone to get saved. They stand up. They withdraw. And look at what they said to one another as they're walking out or as they, on the other side of the door. They said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. How nice would that have been to say that before Paul? (laughs) No. That's a secret between them. And look at this in 32, the last line. Aren't you astonished that I got through this entire chapter? That is a miracle, second to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, that looks like the biggest letdown in the world. When I first read that, I thought, oh, dang it, so close, Paul. The worst thing that could have happened at this point is for Paul to be freed. He did not want to be freed. He wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel, even to the point if he had the opportunity to say what he said here before the highest official in the known world, in the modern world. Emperor Nero. The worst thing you could have done to Paul was said, okay, we found nothing wrong, you're out of here. Paul would have been like, wait a minute. Jesus made a promise I'm supposed to go to Rome to preach the gospel. You guys need to transfer me. It's cool. How many of us would live that sacrificially? Amazing. This is not a letdown. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And that's an interesting legal term there. Once you make that appeal, it has to happen. You don't retract that appeal right there. That paperwork had been filed. The Caesar was waiting. Now, I don't know if he was really waiting. He was probably drinking wine and getting fed grapes. I think of those horrific Monty Python movies. They're great, and I know the Heisels love them. So I'm going to honor them today. Once it had been filed, that was it. And I'm sure that Paul was thrilled that they didn't turn him loose, that he was still going to be on mission and to go to the very place that he hoped and dreamed and prayed and desired to go to, to go preach the gospel at the literal center of the world. Oh. Closing. Go back and look at 26.8. It says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
to unbelievers, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a pistos. It's incredible in this sense of the word. It is inconceivable. It's folly. But to believers, it's awesome. It's awesome. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures our regeneration, 1 Peter 1, 3. We sang a song earlier that talked about that. Rising he justified. It ensures our justification, right? Our regeneration, 1 Peter 1, 3. It ensures our justification, Romans 4, uh, 24 to 25, which is where that lyric comes from. It ensures our own resurrection, that we will receive glorified resurrection bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, 14. And it is paramount to our faith, 1 Corinthians 13 to 14, what is it, chapter 15? Where is that? I think, believe it is. Paramount, meaning that our faith is in vain without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That our faith is hinged upon it. I like what Ross Clifford, he's an Aussie and a theologian down there, down under, with a little shrimp on the Barbie action. He said this about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. No other dogma provides the glue that holds faith, life, and practice all together. Do you believe that? Paul certainly believed that. Paul certainly believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived it out and he preached it, didn't he? That's why he was on trial, man. My hope and prayer is that we would not only believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that we would also live it out and preach it just as Paul had done. That we would follow his example. May our lives and lips testify to the prophetic truth of Scripture, to the gospel, to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To us, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is literally incredible, not inconceivable, not apistos. It is incredible. It is mind-blowing. It is awe-inspiring. May we celebrate the risen Lord Jesus today on Easter Sunday and tomorrow and on Tuesday and Wednesday and on every day and for all eternity. Leave this place. Leave this place place filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the resurrection power of God and go and make disciples in every nation beginning in your own hometown wherever it is Modesto Ripon wherever and baptize those disciples in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that Christ commanded and know that Christ will be with you with us till the end of the age amen Amen. the resurrection power of God is what is in you. It is what propels ministry and the Great Commission. Leave this place filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with that power and go out and proclaim Christ to the nations. Be bold like Paul was. Look for opportunities.